Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25 uh, had high hopes last time and almost finished them. We, we hope to get through 25.4, uh, so that's where we'll pick up. We got everything till there. We're going to try to get to the end of 26 in the lesson tonight, if we can. But Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. There are passages of Scripture that call for concern even for animals, even for the creatures that God has made. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10, the Bible says, A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast. So when the ox is treading the grain, don't put a muzzle on him. So that he cannot eat. How is that passage, though, used in the New Testament? It's used in a pretty fascinating way. Bob? Yeah, it is reg- it's used twice to describe the payment. Deuteronomy 25:4, do not muzzle the ox, is used. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, to talk about the support of preachers, and also in uh, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18. 1 Timothy 5 18, it talks about the elders who work in teaching and preaching, uh, and it says they are worthy of support. Now, do you get the conclusion? Do you, when you automatically read that verse, Muzzle not the ox. Do you think, aha, it's talking about the support of preachers? I don't. I don't draw that conclusion immediately. And Paul, let's just see how Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 9. Because I think what he says, yes, Bob. I pushed that button, but I didn't hold it down a little bit. Now, um, 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. And let's look at verse 8 through 10. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher ought to thresh in hope. To thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Now, he asks, is God concerned about the ox? The answer is yes. He's not saying no, but he is saying, I think, the principle is bigger. If God is concerned even about the animals, if God is concerned even about the ox while he is helping the farmer thresh his grain, how much more concern is he about those who preach and teach 
that they be supported in that particular work. I think it is a statement that even more so, in a stronger way, this is true of those those who preach the gospel. Bob? In, in like manner that he uses the Yes. 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 All usually when there is a statement in the Bible about God's love for the animals that He has made, it is a statement about the greater value of the people creating His image. Generally, that is the context. Now, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother, that the name may not that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate of the elders, go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, this is, these verses, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, are usually called the leveret law of marriage. Leveret is the Latin word for brother-in-law. So that's how that particular term originated. Now, what verses 6 and 7 do is they give the legislation and verses 7 through 10 point what happens if the brother doesn't want to fulfill this particular instruction. So verses 5 and 6... First of all, state the legislation itself. And those verses show that there are certain conditions to what is described. The conditions are, as described in verse 5, that brothers live together. Brothers live together. And to shorten the second condition, one brother 
dies. He is married, but he dies without a son. Now, this doesn't apply to other circumstances, apparently. Now, we will find in one Old Testament book that this is expanded a little bit. But this is the, this is the wording. Brothers are living together, and one brother who's married all of a sudden passes away, and he does not have a son. And what he is to do, what the other brother is to do, is the other brother marries his brother's wife. He marries his brother's wife, and the first son is the heir of the late brother. Now, generally, was it okay in normal circumstances to marry your brother's wife? No. It was viewed as a list of crimes with Leviticus 18 verse 16 and Leviticus 20 verse 21 mentioned that as a crime. Remember John the Baptist says to his brother, um, John the Baptist preaches to Herod, um, it is not lawful for you to have her. He had taken his brother's wife. Um, and so that was generally not permitted. In these circumstances, it was. Why is that? Well, a couple of things. The very context shows God is concerned about this man leaving behind an heir who will take over the property and who will continue to carry on the name of the late brother. Uh, also, it may be that the woman was in a much better circumstance if she was taken into her husband's house than if uh, she, um, if she was simply often went unmarried in those circumstances. Now, it is very interesting that there are there is a situation before the law in Genesis 38 verses 1 through 10 that seems to reflect this was practiced before the law. Also, there are other laws similar to this in other nations in the ancient Near East. We have some law codes that have been discovered that, that give the same kind of instruction. So that is the basic instruction in verses 5 and 6. But what verses 7 through 10 do is they give the situation where a man does not desire to marry his brother's wife in what happens in those circumstances. The Bible says in verse 7, if he does not desire to take his brother's wife, that same phrase will be used at the end of verse 8, he doesn't desire to go into her. What she does is she goes up to the gate to the elders of the city. The elders of the city are apparently trying to talk him into it. 
The Bible says she tells the elders of the city in verse 8, the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. I take it that they are encouraging him to do this, that this is for the good of the community, that this is a good thing to do. But if he persists and says, I don't desire to take her, then his brother's wife comes to him in the sight of the elders of Israel, pulls off his sandals, spits in his face, and says, this is what he's done to the man who doesn't want to build up the house of his brother. And in Israel, his name is called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, what book in the Bible gives us a little bit more insight into that? Ruth. The book of Ruth shows us. Now, what the book of Ruth shows us is that by the time we get to the judges, this law about brothers living together was expanded further than simply brothers living together. It was the nearest male heir in that particular case. And so that was what was done. And and you remember in Ruth 4, when Boaz goes up to the elders of the city, he goes up to the elders of the city, calls ten of them aside, and he speaks to them, and he calls over that near relative, and he speaks with him in the presence of the elders of the city. He makes the offer to the man. You can uh, get this field. Uh, he says, I will purchase it. He said, also know that you marry Ruth, uh, and you will raise up a descendant to her. He says, I cannot. Remember then what happened as a result of that? He takes off his sandal and gives it. There is no spit in the face there. It is a little bit modified. Maybe, maybe it is because there is someone who's ready to take that responsibility. It could be also because that near kinsman was not a brother living together. It may be that the penalty was not as severe in that case. But um, we, we could spend the whole time on the Ruth, and I don't want to do that. But I don't want to continue. Um, for Boaz to do what he did puts himself at a point of disadvantage. Because he's going to spend all this time on this piece of property which is going to be passed on to someone else. And so it's really a noble act. And maybe sometimes brothers didn't want to fulfill that responsibility because, listen, if this... If my brother dies and doesn't have an heir, that leaves more for me and for my children. And it may have been an economic motive that sometimes led people not to do that. Now, where does this verse come into play in the New Testament? David? Yeah. In the uh, in the resurrection, who's going to 
Yes, it is in Matthew 22, 23 through 33, and Mark 12, 18 through 17. It is also, uh, or 27, is also in Luke 20, 27 through 40. And the Sadducees, to them, this just shows the absurdity of the resurrection. A brother died, didn't have any children, and the next one marries her, and he dies without children. And finally, the woman goes through all seven brothers, and she's married them all, and she's not had a child by any. And in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus shows that resurrection life is not simply a continuation of life as it is on this earth. But it's a new kind of life where we are like the angels and we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, what, what will all that look like? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, one man told me, he said, I guess I won't be married in heaven, but I still expect my wife to ask me why I was talking to that lady. But, uh, you know, I don't know if, if that will still apply or not. But, um, but it is a statement to us about how grand life will be in the resurrection. Verses 11 and 12. If two men... Uh, a man and his countrymen, or some of your versions have brothers, are struggling uh, together. And the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts out, his hand, puts out her hand and seizes his genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand. You shall not pity. Do you know this is the only case in the law where it recommends... Mutilation. I know there's that statement, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But this is the only, only specific law where we are told to cut off a body part. And you cut off the woman's hand in such circumstance. In verses 13 through 16. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight, and you shall have a full and just measure, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord. This is a subject that is touched upon in every portion of the Old Testament, however you divide it. It is touched upon in the law, it is touched upon in poetic books, it is touched upon in the prophets. All of them give this same basic instruction. It was apparently very common to have two sets of weights and two sets of measures. And you had a heavy measure that you used when you were buying, when you got more for the stated price. And you had a lighter weight that you used in selling where you sold less for the stated price. And the Bible says that is an abomination to the Lord. 
that kind of dishonesty in business is an abomination. And it is rebuked many times in Scripture. But one of the things that is scary about this sin is that often it is practiced by people who go to church all the time. Now you say, what's your proof of that? My proof is how it's used in Amos 8. Amos 8 in verse 4. 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over? that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. My proof is not doing a lot of interviews. My proof is just simply looking at the biblical text. And we see that in the Old Testament, people who were faithful in attending the Sabbath day and new moon services couldn't wait for those days to get over where they could hurry out there and make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and achieve with dishonest scales. But if we're doing that, as they were doing that, what do you think God thought about their worship? on the Sabbath day or the new moon? And what would God think about our worship if we were doing the same thing? If we were simply sitting in services thinking about what shortcuts we were going to make to our business tomorrow to make more money at the expense of the person who's coming in needing the product we're selling. What would God say? We know that God wouldn't be pleased with that. Everyone, Deuteronomy 25, 16 says, everyone who does these, who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. Verses 17 through 19. As I read these, I want to ask you to think about how does this fit? The context. How does this fit the context? 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How you met him along the way and attacked among you. He had, and he attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. And, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Now, first of all, we're going to say some things about the text. But I'm not forgetting my question. And I want to come back to it. I want you to ask you to think, you know, why is this given here and how does it tie to the context? But I'll tell you something that was striking to me when I thought about it. 
is the fact that verse 17, 25, 17, calls upon the people to remember. Remember what Amlet did. And this section ends in verse 19 with the statement that you are not to forget. You are to remember this. You are not to forget it. This is an example of something that people did wrong that God wants Israel to remember. Remember what Amlet did to you. And this is recorded in Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. This is the time when Moses lifts up his hands, Israel prevails. When he lets down his hands, Israel is defeated. And when he doesn't have the strength to hold up his hands anymore, Aaron stands on one side and first stands on the other, and they hold up his hand. I think the idea is that they are winning because of their dependence upon God. And Moses crying out for help to God. And the Bible says that when you are safe in the land, when you have been given rest from your foes, I want you to, to not forget this, and I want you to blot out his name from under heaven. Blot out his memory, it may say, from under heaven. Now, what's interesting, remember the purpose of marrying your brothers, your late brother's wife, in verse 6, was that your name would not be blotted out. What God doesn't want to happen to the Israelite man who has died early in life is what's going to happen to Amalek. Their name is going to be blotted out. They're going to be blotted out from under the earth. Now, why do, how does this fit the context? Do any of you have an idea? I think it is particularly tied to something in verse 18. Bob seems to be an indication towards people that are in dire circumstances. <coughs> seems to tie with the woman here, kind of wraps up here in 18 with the stragglers at the back of the pack. Those uh, less, uh, less able to care for themselves. Yes. I think that's exactly right, what Bob said. If you couldn't hear him as well, in 2518, 2518, you find that what the Amalekites did is they attacked the stragglers at the rear. Those who were weak, those who were faint, those who were weary. What do animals of prey often do? They prey upon the weakest. They prey upon the most vulnerable. And that's the same thing the Amalekites did. And what Bob was saying in this whole section, a point is God's concern for those very people. 
God's concern for the weak. God's concern for those who are straggling. Those who are behind. Remember in 24 verses 17 through 22. If you look over a sheaf in your field. Or an olive in your, uh, uh, on the tree. Or if you look over a grape on the vine. Don't go back and get it. But leave it to the poor and the orphan and the alien. What has been emphasized in this context is God's concern for the weak and for the helpless. How serious a thing is that? It is so serious that when Amalek doesn't do that, but instead takes advantage of those who are weak and helpless and straggling behind, God says, remember them and blot them out from under heaven, which that same blot them out, remember in 1 Samuel 15, is where Saul is told to go and utterly do that. Go and utterly destroy them. And? Lack of fear of God. Lack of, oh, I thought you were pointing to clock. Um, a lack of fear of God leads us to attack the weak instead of helping the weak. If it can be used to our advantage. Uh, there was no fear of God before their eyes. That's how Psalm 36 verse 1 starts. And that is, uh, that is a key um, right there. Uh, to their lack of good behavior. A person told me, he was not the victim of this, but somebody in his group, he was in the southern part of Africa, and they were attacked. Uh, not, not in a sense they were trying to kill, but they were trying to steal from them. And they, um, that someone, that they saw the Bible, they saw that one of these people that they were stealing from had the Bible. They said, quick, get out of here before the Lord strikes us. And so they just took what they had and left. There was a fear of God that prevented, gave limits to how far they would go in doing wrong. And so that's what I'm trying to say. I think I, there's a, a tie here. And uh, we'll, we'll ask Emory and Mike. That's a good passage, Revelation 6, 9, and 10. Between the time of Moses and the time of Saul, if we date Moses early, as I think we should, this is about 400 years. God is patient and long-suffering with these people. He doesn't just save it and then destroy them completely. He's patient. He's long-suffering. My in each one of the sections in this chapter, we also see the idea of cruelty, which is indicative of a person's heart for what's going through. So 
Yeah, yes. That, that, that is true. In, in your treatment of the poor, uh, in verses 13 through 16, in, uh, and certainly in this case right here. Bob? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and the second thing is, we have a reference uh, to verse 18, Joshua 2, verse 19, which has some similar wording, but it's a little bit different uh, context. I believe it says, But do not stay here and declare yourself, pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them. The, the idea there is yes, so. yes, yes. But of course, if God said to do it anyway, you know, we know it's a different circumstance. And I think we, you're bringing in the, the destruct, Bob. You're bringing in the destruction of the Canaanites, which is a very similar case to destruction of the Amalekites. Remember, God told Abraham the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It could be from the time of Abraham to the time of Joshua. We stated between Moses and Amalek, there's about 400 years. It could be from Abraham to the time of Joshua, which is maybe 700 years. God is very long-suffering. And so if at that point God says, take them from I know what you're saying. I said you just surprise attack at some places in the book. But um, he certainly has been very patient with them to bring them to this point. Can we? You mentioned how this gets backwards to the, the, this section of the text, with some of these cues of protecting the weak. It also connects to forward and provides a transition with some of these language. Verse 17, mentioning coming out of Egypt, chapter 16, we'll talk about, or 26, rather, talk about the inheritance. Yes. Talk about the inheritance. It's like the language just flows into the next chapter. So while it's wrapping up the Yes, good, good, good way to describe it. In verse 20, in verse nineteen, um, it says, "When I get, I'm starting in the middle of the verse. When the Lord your God gives, has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, that in twenty six one it shall come about when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, uh, the deliverance from Egypt." 2517 that Cameron mentioned and you see the same thing in 26 verses 7 and 8 so yes it's a good connection with the context chapter 26 Uh, chapter 26 1 through 11 deals with the offering of first fruits to God offering of first fruits in verse 1 Notice how many times it emphasizes the Lord gives you the land, the Lord gives you something. It's just, it's just all over this section. Let's just read the first four verses at first. Then it shall be, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it, and you live in it, 
that you'll take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you. And you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall give to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Now, we're going to see in verse 5 some things he's going to say when he comes into the presence of God. But let's, let's look a little bit at some key phrases in this section. Um, first of all, the text is repeatedly going to mention either the Lord, the Lord your God, or the Lord my God. Those phrases will be used over and over. Not without significance. Talk about it more in just a moment. But he emphasizes, he uses that phrase to emphasize too about the Lord giving you the land. And what they are to do when they are settled in the land, when they have received the land, and they are enjoying the blessings of the land, then they are going to bring in a basket some of their first fruits to God. And it says in verse 5, they're going to, they're going to make this confession. They're going to state this. Now I want you to notice how verses 5 through 9 are a short summary of Israel's history to this point. A short summary of their history. The Bible says, you shall answer and say before the Lord your God. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our affliction, our, our voice, and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he brought us to the place, to this place, and gave us the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 5 he talks about the time of the patriarchs. The time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Isaac and Jacob. He said, my father was a wandering Aramean. Your versions have anything else besides wandering there. That word can mean, it is a word, a root word that can mean destroy. And some have put that it was a, um, to emphasize his dangerous condition. I think 
it probably emphasizes both Jacob's wandering condition and his desperate condition as he was totally dependent upon God and his protection as he wandered away from his father's house. But verse 6 talks about the experience of slavery in the land of Egypt. We were in Egypt, we were afflicted, and we were... He uses three verbs to describe the treatment. He says they treated us harshly, they inflicted us, and they imposed hard labor upon us. Then he says in verse 7 that we cried to the Lord. And you read all these things in the books of Genesis and Exodus. The slavery and making their lives bitter. You see that in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14. You see them crying to the Lord in Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. And the Lord heard their cry, verse 8. The Lord heard their cry. And he delivered them. And that's the whole point in Exodus uh, 2, 23 to 25, uh, going to chapter 3, as he calls Moses uh, in those first 12 verses or so, and even beyond that. God heard their cry, and God is going to send Moses to deliver them. And he brought them out of Egypt with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm. That refers to all the events of the Exodus. And then he brought them into the land. In verse in verse. 9, the conquest of the land, which is recorded in the book of Joshua. So, what you see in these passages of Scripture is a short summary of Israel's history. Now, I want, I want to tell you one thing that's striking to me. When each of them brought their first fruits to God, notice how they sing. In verse... The Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted. Now, it's not going to be very long before everybody that lived through that experience of slavery in Egypt is going to be gone. But they still say, when they bring their first fruit, the Egyptians afflicted us. Do we realize that biblical history is our history? Israel was being taught to see the history of that nation as their history that they personally are participating in. I think we are seeing the same thing as we look at these texts that these Old Testament people who were faithful to God are our forefathers. Maybe not by a um, Ancestry.com status, but from a standpoint of they are our real ancestors. These, we are their descendants. And, and so they, they reviewed the history of Israel and they all the first fruits of God. Now, I said over and over, you're going to see the phrase, the Lord, the Lord your God, and phrases like that. All throughout Israel's history, there was the temptation 
for them to attribute the blessings of fertility to the land, to the other gods, to Baal and to other gods. But God says you are to bring this to the Lord your God. Hosea 2 is a passage where the people attributed all their blessings to other gods. God says, it's the land I've given you. And you're going to come to the place I established for you to come to worship. And you're going to give this to me. And you're going to review your history. And you're going to, and you're going to say what I've done. All of this serves to draw the people closer to God. To make them more thoughtful. By the way, if you've ever wrestled with whether giving to God is worship. Here's a clear passage where it is. They're giving of what God had given them, conscious that He is responsible for every blessing, using it to tell the story of all God has done for them and how He has blessed them. And they would take, set it down, and worship before the Lord. And it says that uh, verse 11, certainly in the context of rejoicing, you and the Levite, the alien who's among you, shall rejoice. I, I, I want to get to this next section. I think we can cover it, maybe cover the whole thing, but verses 26, 1 through 11 recorded this bringing the first fruits to God. 26, 1 through 11, the first fruits. What we are doing in verses, in Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 through 15, is we're talking about the tithe every third year. And I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this, I think that I have tried to have put together a couple more pieces than I did before when we were in chapter 14, verses 28 through 29. It talked about a tithe every third year. They gave a tithe every year. Sometimes they bring it to the temple or the tabernacle and give it to the priest. It seems like every third year they left it in their community and it was to be shared by the poor who had nothing. In verse 12, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of your tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, that, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. So every third year, they brought it to their town and they left it in their town where these poor people could have it. In verse 13, you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house. So what they did, they went to the house of God before the priest and they vowed that they had done this. I have removed the sacred portion from my house, verse 13, and given it to the Levite, the alien, the orphan, the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it. He denies three things. He said, I have not eaten of it while mourning. I have not removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. But I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I've done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from heaven. This is a prayer. Look down from heaven 
from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, as you swore to our fathers. So every tenth year, every third year, they brought the tent, they brought the tithe into their own community to be shared by the poorest and those who were in the greatest sense of need. But they made a vow before God that they had done this faithfully in verses 13 and 14. That they had brought their time, they had removed the sacred portion from their house, and that they had brought it to these unfortunate groups or less fortunate groups, and that they had been faithful in doing it. And they vowed, I didn't eat any of it one morning. I didn't remove any of it when I was unclean, and I didn't offer any to dead, which was a uh, problem with worship of the dead and all of the dead, all that went along with that. So listen to God. And they're asking God, look down from heaven, bless your people, and bless the ground you've given us. Uh, a land flowing with no money and no faith. Any questions right there? There's so many more things that we could have shared, but hopefully you get an essence of the passage. Any other thoughts? Okay, Lord willing, Sunday we're going to try to, to start at 26-16. And I want us to get through all of 27 at least give some kind of a little introduction to, to, to 28. 28, I, I don't know if this is right. I have to go back and look. I think it may be the longest chapter of the Hebrew Bible according to words. Just according to words. So it's a, it's a long chapter. And um, we could spend the rest of the time on that and not cover it out. We're going to do the best we can. And then one night, one Sunday night, I think I'm just going to lock all the doors and not let everybody out till we finish the whole thing. So.